And, and so one of, the, one of our heartbeats is we do a preparing for marriage weekend. So if you know anybody who's dating or engaged, uh, we make this weekend available. Hi, how are you? And anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's actually going to happen in about five weeks, so it's coming up pretty close. But I have brochures up here. It's, it's called Preparing for Marriage. It's a Preparing for Marriage weekend. Starts Friday evening, goes all day, all day Saturday. So if, if, any, if you know anybody that's dating or engaged or even yet just married, uh, it's, we, just would, we just tried to put together some material that would really help marriages work better. When Grace and I were first married, nobody really were, was doing this type of thing. And, and so when we got married, we thought you're going to get married and live happily ever after. And it didn't take long for us to realize there was a lot of things that we had to work through. And our marriage was soon struggling greatly. And because of God and other people speaking into our lives, uh, we, we, we started a healing process and, and still working on that. And anyway, we, before, then we were put into the ministry. We were ordained in the ministry. And I was determined I wouldn't marry anybody unless we would sit down and talk to him about what it's going to be like getting married. And so out of that came this weekend. And so and now instead of sitting down with individual couples, we just invite them to come to the weekend. So there's brochures here. They're going to be up here on the front seat. If anybody wants them, feel free to come up and help yourself. So what we want to look at this afternoon is, is a continuation I mean, it's morning, still morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a continuation of uh, identity. And we want to look at the, the destructive work of shame. We want to look at divine restoration and the role of personal responsibility. So it's going to be a case study. And there's some handouts. If you don't have a handout, I think there's probably some extra ones around here. So if you don't have a there's actually two handouts. The one we're going to go over, the one that says the power of words. Words can either bless or curse. We're going to go over that one at the end of the PowerPoint. But the other one is just sort of for you to look at as, as a resource. So let's, let's begin. So we want to look at this, uh, we want to look at a case study. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, we find Jesus in the temple and he asks for a scroll and they bring the scroll of Isaiah to him and he starts reading these words. And we're not going to put the entire part that he read up there, but we're going to put a few, uh, few scriptures up here. He starts out by saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And he's reading this, speaking of himself. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release darkness for the prisoners. And look what he says here. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace... They will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In working with hurting people, I end up sitting with, listening to people's stories, and I hear stories that have them trapped in bondage, in bondage to sin, but in bondage to guilt, and in bondage to shame. Things have happened to them. Sometimes it was their doing that caused the problem. Sometimes it was not their doing. They had nothing to do with it. Sometimes because of what was done to them, they still take responsibility for it even when it was not their responsibility. Jesus came to set us free. Set us free from guilt. Set us free from shame. To set us free from the bondage of the past. He came to set us free from that. So let's, let's look at this. Um, then the eyes, this is speaking about Adam and Eve, and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We spend a lot of time sewing fig leaves, trying to cover our nakedness. And what is nakedness? Well, it's, they feel, we, we feel exposed, we feel inadequate, vulnerable, unworthy because of things that happened to us or were done to us. And there ends up being a personhood shame, a, a shame about who we are as a person. I could sit up here and tell you horror stories. I can tell you of a young woman who, whose father abused her horribly, sold her to other men. 
very conservative father, but used her, abused her, sold her, trafficked her to help pay off his dairy farm. I'm just telling you, I, I listen to these stories. I hear, and, and that's, that isn't the worst of that story, but I'm not going to go any further, okay? That's somebody who is close to us. And, and you see, I, 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 sometimes I think I've heard the worst and then I hear something worse. But you see, it shouldn't be named among us. But then what does a person do with that? What does she do with that? You see how that impacts a person when, when they've been treated that way? But, and you know, that probably hasn't happened that severe to you. But you know what? Maybe you're sitting here and things like that have happened to you. You know, what happens is we don't come out with it. We, don't, we hide it. And there's, there's things that maybe were less damaging, but we still hide it. And then there's this personhood shame. There's an inner shame about who we really are. If I, heard, I had people tell me, if, if people really knew who I, who I was, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't want to be around me. That's personhood shame. Because, you see, they don't feel comfortable with who they are. It goes back to who, their identity. So we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at guilt and we're going to look at shame. Guilt is an emotional reaction about behavior. Okay, it's an emotional reaction about behavior. I did wrong, I made a mistake. Okay, there isn't a single person here that, that I know of, that I believe, that who hasn't done wrong and hasn't made a mistake. That produces guilt, and rightly so. Okay, but then there's shame. I did wrong, I am wrong, I am a mistake. I hear those words. I hear people tell me those things. And that's awful because, you see, they're full of shame. And that, that, that deals with their personhood. It deals with their identity, who they are. And we want to talk about that on the handout as, when we get to the end. There's two ways of living. Okay, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He shall be like a tree, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You know, that's somebody who trusts in the Lord. Then cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh. He will be like a bush in the wasteland. He'll not see prosperity when it comes. He'll dwell in the parched places. So do you trust in yourself to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to make it in life? Or do you realize that we serve a, a God who is a healer, who read from Isaiah and told them that this day, this is fulfilled in their ears. And we are living in the time of Jesus, in his healing, in his setting us free, in, in his love and acceptance and his adoption as, to, uh, of us, of as being his sons and daughters. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story of the gospel. It's, it is, it's too good to be true, but it's true. So what we want to do is we want to do a case study. Meet Saul, the future king. He was the first one, right? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel far more handsome, far more handsome than he. I mean, there was, not, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He, had, he, lo he looked like me. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but do you see what he had going for him? Look what he had going for him. Handsome a head taller than everybody else. He was a man of wealth. Wow. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? Now, I want you to really pay attention to this. Please, really pay attention to what, what the words are here. I mean, this is, this is so huge. This is so huge. I don't think you'll see Saul in, an, in the same way. This is really important. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Saul went to his home in Gibeah. That's important. This, yeah. Accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. So he went home to Gibeah. That was his home. And he was accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. He was surrounded by godly men. But he was going home to Gibeah. 
Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So here he was. God was using Samuel to call Saul and choose him as the first king of Israel. And so when he talks to Saul, and he was this mighty specimen of a man, Saul is saying, but why are you talking to me? Am I not of the least of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin? So why would Benjamin be one of the least of the tribes? He says, am I not? Uh, yeah, and he continues. He, he also said he went home to Gibeah. So here he is, he's looking at this. He says, why have you spoken to me this? Am I not of the humblest of the tribes? So is he speaking out of humility or is he speaking out of shame? That's the question. So we ran into two things. The slide before, and I was getting it a bit mixed up there, but before it says he went home to Gibeah. And here he says he's of the least of the tribes, Benjamin. Who, who remembers anything about Gibeah? Who can tell me anything about Gibeah? If I start telling you a story, I think you'll remember. Do you remember the man who had married a, a gal and then she ran away? She went back to her father's home and he went out to find her. And he went to find her and he went back to the home, stayed there for some time, had an agreement with dad, maybe her, I don't know. But then he traveled home. He was heading home and he had his concubine with him. So they, they stopped in Gibeah, and he was going to camp out in the town square. And a man came up to him and says, no, it's not safe for you to camp out in the town square. Come home with me and stay with me. So he takes his concubine, and they go, and they stay with this man. Well, they were in there, and after a while, there were men who were pounding on the door. They were homosexuals. And they said, send the man out. We want to make sport with him. And the owner says, no way. And guess what they did? They opened the door and they pushed the concubine out. Okay, you remember the story? Okay, and they raped her and they abused her. And in the morning when they opened the door, she was laying in the doorstep dead. Do you remember what he did? He cut her into 12 pieces and sent her a piece to each tribe in Israel, saying what had been done in Gibeah, in the tribe of Benjamin. Do you remember what Israel did? They went to war against Benjamin. They went in, and they totally wiped out every man in Benjamin. There were no, ben no, I'm sorry. There were only 600 men left, but there were no women left. They wiped out everybody but 600 men. That was all that was left of Benjamin, 600 men, because of what, they, what was done. And then they felt badly about this, and so there was no way for the tribe of Benjamin to come back. And so what did they do? They devised a plan that they would go, and they would capture, they'd have these 600 men capture wives from the nations around them and bring them home. And so now he's saying, Benjamin is the least of the tribes. We're not even purebreds anymore. We're half-breeds. And can you believe the dastardly thing that happened in Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin? And you see, here he's saying this. He went home to Gibeah. That was his home. It happened in his hometown. Not only that, he was a Benjaminite of the least of the tribes because they were looked down on because they were not purebreds anymore. Does that make any sense? And go, here's Saul, and he is, is he speaking out of humility or is he speaking out of shame? And I'm going to suggest to you that he is speaking out of shame. Even though he had everything going for him because of who he was. Now look what, look what we keep on finding out about him. But it's important to see this picture. A restored identity. You see, God knew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew he was a half-breed. He was choosing him. Isn't it interesting who God chose to be his people? Even, even the four parents of Jesus incorporated prostitutes and, and, and Gentiles and people who were not of the tribe 
of Israel. Amazing. And here's God choosing the first king to come out of the least of the tribes, one that wasn't pure Israel. Fascinating, isn't it? Wow. And so here's a restored identity. In, in 1 Samuel, and, and I, I was looking over this this morning, he was honored at the table. In other words, they called him in. They had a feast, and, and, and they, they blessed him. He was honored at the table. He was anointed. Samuel poured oil on his head, anointed him to be the king. He had, a, he had three prophetic encounters in a row in, in uh, 1 Samuel 10. And, and, and God miraculously showed him that he was going to work through him. In the rest, of, he was out searching for his dad's donkeys, and, and he had a real encounter there, and God blessed him. Anyway, if you read the account in, in chapter 10, you'll see that he had three prophetic encounters where God was speaking into his life so that he would know that God had chosen him. And this wasn't an accident. This was by choice and by intent by the Almighty. Look what it says here. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and will prophesy with him. Samuel's telling Saul this. And you will be changed into a different person. Please get this. You will be changed into a different person. How many of you know that when you become born again, you become a new creature? This, this applies. This applies. Once these signs are fulfilled, look what it says. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And I want, I want, I want to give you a little bit of read thinking here. I, I oftentimes have people say, well, I, I really wonder what God's will is for me in my life. That verse really tells me a lot. I don't have to wonder what God wants me to do. Does he want me to be a plumber or a carpenter or a truck driver? What does he want me to do? It don't matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. You see, once these signs are fulfilled, what signs? You'll be changed into a different person. Uh, the Lord will come upon you. When you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, you are free to do whatever you want to do, only do it as unto the Lord. If you feel called to be a missionary, be a missionary. If you, if you feel called to be a truck driver, be a truck driver. If you could, be whatever you want. But be the man God calls you to be. Be, be that new person, that, re, that person that he says, you're going to be changed into a different person. Wow. And Saul, as, look what it says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. Do you see that? Do you see what the scriptures are telling, telling us? Saul was changed into a different man. Now he was all prepared to do whatever he put his heart to. And he was prepared to be an awesome, godly king of Israel. The power of a spiritual encounter. God made him a new man. He did not know how to stay a new man. God can make you a new woman. He has made you. It's, your, it's important to realize. It, there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's gone. The new's come. All of this is, this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, in Christ. The problem was Saul's default position. And I'm, here's, this once again is another tool for us to use. And the tools only work as if we use them. You see, God wants to heal you of your shame so that your shame don't drag you back from being a new creature. You know, I, I, I just told you about that, that, that gal, what her dad did. But some of you sitting here have been abused too. I know that. You can't have a, a group this size without that happening. You can't. I just know that because of my experience. Uh, life is, statistics show me that. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. There's people here that have been abused. I'm just telling you. And you know what that does? It, it gives you a personhood wound that can create shame, that has this downward pull on you. I'm not, I'm not, if they knew who I really was, if they knew what happened to me, if they knew what was done to me, they wouldn't want to be around me. They wouldn't like me. Okay, that's a lie of the enemy. He wants to keep you in shame. He wants to keep you defeated. He doesn't want you to have truth set you free. Last night, those of you who were here, we talked about that, that man whose dad beat him 39 times. We, we also talked about the, the other situation. And, you know, both times, the, they, were, they both were set free by truth. 
by Jesus speaking truth, and whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. God wants to speak truth into your life to heal you. And when he sets you free, you're free indeed. But now it's your responsibility to maintain to being a new creature. It was Saul's default position. The gravitational pull of shame calls for personal responsibility. Can we hear that? God gives the grace of a restored identity. Maintenance of that gift is our responsibility. This is important. It's not just going to be, okay, I'm saved, I'm on, happy on the way, and now let's go, let's go and have a, let's, let's go do whatever. No, maintaining, being the person that God calls you to be is your responsibility. You think you can, you got all excited about becoming born again and, and Jesus coming in your life and who you are in Christ, and then you don't read his word. You don't stay with him. You don't walk with him. You don't talk with him. We were talking on the way over here how that we have been trained to pray. Mary Ellen, what's, how do you say it? Liturgic, lit, liturgy. We've been taught to pray liturgically. Is that a word? Okay. We sat through and listened to our parents pray, our church brothers pray. Pray at meals, bless the poor, the sick, the needy, and all that we're duty-bound to pray for. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bless this food to its intended use. When I was a child, I, I was trying to figure out what tended juice is. I couldn't figure out what tended juice was. Okay, anyway. anyway we see, we're, 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 we pick this up, and then what, what do we do? We repeat the same old thing. Do you know what? God wants to have a relationship with you. And I don't sit here and talk to you, Jeff, like, oh, dear Jeff, when are thou going to get up and go do something else? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I, God, God wants us to have conversation with him. If you, sometimes when I'm in the back room by myself, you, you'd think I'm crazy if you'd walk in because I'm just saying, Father, today I'm, I'm looking at, deal, I'm meeting with so-and-so. I don't know what to tell him. But would your Holy Spirit bring the words? Would you be there present? Would you open that heart? Would you, would you, would you just make this relationship work? Would you, would you, would you bring healing? I just, you just have conversation with the Father, just like you would have with another person. Okay, it's our responsibility. When I, and, and here, now look what, look what Paul says. You remember, you remember these scriptures? Paul says he, he, he was confronted by Samuel because he sacrificed. And he says, when I saw that the men were departing from me and you had not come at the set time, I felt compelled. You know, what he's, you know what's hitting there? His feelings. I felt compelled. You see, Saul went home to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. So now hear this, this, over, this overview of, of this uh, next statement here. He says, I felt compelled. Why did he feel compelled? You see, now he's a king. Now he's being approached because he was going to war and he wanted Samuel to show up and, and make a sacrifice to God and find out what God wanted him to do in the war. And, and I think God just wanted him to know that he was supposed to function on what he knew to do right. But instead, he felt compelled, and so he went ahead and sacrificed, and God judged him for that. But look what it says. I felt compelled. Look what it goes back to. It, so here's Saul going back home to Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose God, hearts God had touched. But it says, but some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? You know, he's from the tribe of Gibeah. He's from the town of Gibeah. He's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. They despised him, and they brought him no gifts, but Saul knew it. Listen, that's key. It says, but Saul kept silent. Listen, he heard those voices. He heard them talk, and do you know what it did? It went back into his shame. I'm a Benjaminite. I'm not really worthy. And that shame drug him back, and now it's impacting him when he's there, and he felt compelled. You see, he, he was going back into the emotions of who he was was before God made him a new creature. Don't just count the votes, weigh them. What does that mean? Well, he, uh, he was accompanied by a whole man, of, 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 a group of people whose hearts God had changed. But guess what? The few voices that said, how can this man save us? They, that vote outweighed the men that God's heart had changed who were with him. You see? You see, the, the shame, that shameful voice allowed the negative voices. You know, if, if, 
20 people here tell me I do a good job, and on the way home, Grace says, that was pretty lousy. Guess, who's, guess, who's vote, guess who vote counts most? Yeah. So here, what, what it's meaning is, is Saul waited, and, and because of his shame, instead of seeing the positive support he had by the men who, whose hearts God had changed, he allowed that shameful uh, experience of who he was of, as a Benjamite and as a Gibeonite, he allowed that to drag him back because of those negative voices. That's what it means. Paul's problem, look, his, it was his default position. Look what happened when David, you know, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. You see, he, he was drawn back into being unworthy. It was his personhood wound that he was carrying all along. And then he got jealous and, and, you know, maybe we could say rightfully so, because, but, but no, he should have been happy that he had a David on his team. Because this is later after David had killed Goliath. I mean, he had a history of, of having a faithful person work under him. But from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And that wasn't a healthy jealousy that we talked about God's jealousy and a husband-wife jealousy. No, this was a, this was a eating, shameful get to you, jealousy. And while David was playing the harp as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. You see, what shame does is it causes us, those unchangeables, those unchangeables cause us to make choices and decisions that will destroy the people around us and damage our future. It pulled Saul's kingship out from under him. He says, when I saw the memory departing, this is just a repeat, but it, I felt compelled. You see what shame does? It causes us to function out of our emotions rather than out of our spirit, out of our heart. Saul never escaped human strength and human weakness as the focus for his life. He should have. He was made a new creature. He was surrounded by godly men. God reaffirmed and confirmed who he was by those prophetic encounters three times, and they were powerful. He was embarrassed at other people's success. He was jealous. He was a people pleaser, and demonic spirits moved in. Depression, violence, anger, murder, and orphan spirit, and then witchcraft and suicide. Isn't it amazing? The man who was head and shoulders, better looking, better equipped, had everything going for him, but because of his shameful background, he couldn't overcome that. It was huge. We have tools to use, not to earn God's favor, but that we will stay with the Father. That's what my goal is for the weekend, is to give us tools to stay with the Father, to understand that he has called us, he has made us a new creature, and it doesn't matter. Can you hear this? It doesn't matter what was in your past. There isn't anything that God can't heal. There isn't anything that's too big for him. There is no sin too big that he can't forgive and heal and cleanse. But sometimes we think if only they would know, if he, and if only they would know what I've done. Oh, well, I know, I know a little bit what that's like. I've done things that I... I think we've all done things that, man, we're embarrassed about, right? Have you ever done anything you're embarrassed about? Sometimes I'll be thinking of something that happened years ago. And, and I'll actually physically jerk and wince. Because how could I be so stupid? It seems like a few of you connect with that. Yeah. But that's not, what God, that's not what, where God wants us to live. You have set a table before me, and this is David now. You've set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, David knew he was in the presence of his, of his enemies, but he still sought. We're going to look at where this goes. And, he's, and here's the reason why. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is now in, in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul speaking. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and took the cup. Isn't that interesting? 
Here's Jesus setting the example for us. He knew the betrayal was coming. He knew all the shame. He, he, he took our shame. He was despised. He rejected. He took all that upon himself so that we don't have to carry it. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay. Remember that he took our shame. And here's some tools. Don't forsake meeting together. Okay. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Do you delight in the word? Do you delight in the word? Do you delight in the word? I'm just telling you, ask God before you start reading, Father, would you give me the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation so I can know you better? Understand that you're reading, when you read the scriptures, you're reading the living word of God, and it will change you. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. We have to, we, we, and that's the maintaining, maintaining the new creature means that we will provide the disciplines in our own life so that we can pursue getting to know God better. Okay. It, is it hard work to study the scriptures? You know what? I, I really look forward to it. I enjoy reading my Bible. I know people are really going to the electronic scriptures, and I have that too, and I use it. But man, this, this one's been recovered twice. I started read, we started reading it as a family Bible around the table, and we highlighted things when we were going through it with our children. Now it's just, it's, man, if I'd lose this, I'd cry. But I'd just get another one to start over again because it's the living Word of God. And I'm just telling you, you, you uh, is, is it hard work for me to do that? Well, I, all I, can, I can tell you this, that all it does, it takes, all it takes is for me to say, I'm too busy this morning once, and the morning, next morning, I'm, I'm still too busy. And I skip it two or three times, and guess what? It's, a lot of, it's very hard work to get back at it again. That, it, it takes some discipline to be in the Word. And it takes some discipline to say, this is life. I need it. I want it. Meditate day and night. Your Word is a light to my feet. It illuminates my path. It's true but it won't happen unless you use the tool. So now let's look at David. We looked at Saul. Let's look at David. His default position, he was set up for failure. We talked about it last night. He was left out of the room. There was no room in the room for him. When Samuel came to anoint a king, he was despised by his brothers. Go home and tend the sheep. Yeah. So he was the runt. But look what he says. I have set the Lord before me at all times because he is at my right hand. I shall never be moved. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? This one's big. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? He was leading this motley crew, and they were out in the desert, and they, he took the men, and they went off, they went off to conquer and do whatever they were going to do, and an enemy came in and took their wives and children. And when they came back, his men were so upset, they were, they were thinking of stoning him. So what did David do? Okay, he did the opposite of Saul. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Wow. You see, he focused on something different. He says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears those who looked at him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Did David do shameful things? Sure did. Do you know, we were talking about that on the way over here, and Brother Phil said he thinks that, that what, what would have happened if we never would have looked at David as a sinful man? We would have put him on a pedestal so high that we might not have been able to get him off. So it lets us know that he was a real man. But what's powerful about it is, is David didn't defend himself. Everybody else, when they were confronted, they would say, well, it was his fault. It was their fault. Yeah, that's what, that's what Eve said. Well, yeah, it, it was a serpent who did it. Well, he confronted man first, and, and, man, and, and Adam said, it was this woman that you gave me. <laughs> yeah, we're always pointing the finger somewhere else and blaming 
the cause on somewhere else. And David says, when Nathan says, you're the man, David goes, yeah, here I am. You know, it's, it's not God, God's people, it's not that they don't fail, it's that they, they humble themselves. There's no room for arrogance in a believer's life. And this is David. So let's look at David and Saul. So here's two men. Here's Saul. He had family significance. He was a kish. You know what those kish are like. Man, they got money. They can do whatever they want. So he was wealthy. He was physically superior, head and shoulder above all the rest. But he, had a shame, he came from a shame culture. And you know, see, it was a shame culture. You see, that, everybody knew what a Benjaminite was. Everybody knew what happened at Gibeah. That was a shame culture that came out of, and he was there, and he came out of that. David, insignificance in family, rejection. And I got to thinking about this, and, and maybe, maybe you would see it differently, and that's okay, but I, I thought about the fear. Can you imagine, I, I don't know how old he, I, don't, I wonder how old David was when he was sent out to tend the sheep. Have any idea? Does anybody know? Any suggestions? My guess, he was probably a teenager. I don't know about you, but if I was going out there and had to stay out there 24-7, seven days a week with the sheep, and I was guarding the favorite food of the bears and the lions, if I had my 270 with me, I'd still be scared. But what if you only had a sling and a staff? Can you imagine what he had to overcome? Do you, do you, do you imagine the fear? That you were tending the sheep, and the bears and the lions wanted those sheep, and it was your responsibility to keep them safe. Put them in the stone shelter, and you slept in the gateway so that nobody could get to them. Uh, he had to overcome a huge amount of fear. I think so. I don't know how you see it, but yeah. So what he did is he spent his time learning songs, writing songs, playing his harp, developing skills. I can, just see, I can just see him with his sling. Can you see him picking up stones? You know, he was watching the sheep, and while they're, while they're grazing, what's he to do? Well, he was playing his harp and singing, and he got tired of that. He'd pick up his sling, and around and around and around, and, and he, hit, he, would see, he would pick a target over there, and he hit, he'd hit that knot on that tree dead on, and he'd go, hey, sheep, did you see that? Bad. What do you do when there's nobody to impress? You keep, on sh you keep on slinging stones. You keep getting better and better. Hey, did you hear that song? Wasn't that neat? Bad. You know, when there's nobody around to impress, I think we learn things in the desert. And maybe you're walking through a desert when, when God seems quiet and everything seems pretty down and, and brown. We learn things there if we keep on being faithful. And we keep looking to get our sustenance and our nourishment from God. And he learned to depend on him. He learned to depend on him. I don't think he walked into that battle with Goliath. He knew that God had delivered. He even says, God delivered the bear. God delivered the lion. And he says, he'll deliver this uncircumcised Philistine too. But you see what? He also went into it with some skill of slinging stones. That wasn't just an accident. Okay, so it's, it's his, it was his responsibility to maintain who he was, and he did. So the real us comes out when the pressure comes, and pressure will come. Pressure comes, things happen, and we don't like it, and then what happens? Well, Saul reverted to shame, the gravitational pull of his past, and he went into his emotions, and he got angry, he got jealous, he feared, and so he made choices and decisions because of the unchangeables in his life that he never overcame. Joseph overcame, overcame those unchangeables, and he became successful. What did David do? He went back to his father, God. It was the power of a disciplined spirit, a disciplined choice. Who are you? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? You see, we have choices, and it's up to us. What are we going to do with that? There's, one, there's only one thing we can change, and that's our response, and we're responsible. Our response is our responsibility, okay?
That's the teaching on the gravitational pull of shame. Any comments? Any questions? Your thoughts? We're going to go over this paper a little bit, or a lot of bit. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But your thoughts? It's constant. It's just always there. Yep. So if you don't do anything, you're going down. You have to be, you have to choose. Yeah, thank you. You said that guilt could be good or bad. Mm-hmm. Shame was always presented as bad. Is that right? Pretty much so. Pretty much so. So we want to look at that. Yeah, that's what we're going to look at in the handout. So maybe you have some thoughts. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is, there, here's, okay, Arlene, let me, uh, yes. Uh, here's, here's, here's something that's really important. And we'll, we'll look at it here. I'm, here I'm jumping ahead of the bandwagon. There, there are legitimate reasons for us to have shame. We can do things that are shameful, and we should be ashamed of that. Now, what are we going to do with that? That's so important. But now here's the thing that's, that's a whole lot more damaging and a whole lot more hurtful, and that is when we have false shame. False shame is accepting the guilt and accepting the, I shouldn't say, accepting the shame for, somebody, for something that was done to us that was somebody else's fault and somebody else's responsibility, not ours. That's so damaging when we accept that shame upon ourselves when it's really somebody else's. So, so we're going to talk about how do we deal with that and what do we do with that. Okay. Yes. 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 So let's, let's talk about what's, what, what do you do with healthy shame? Does God want you to be shameful, shame, ashamed? If you have your paper there, the power of words, words can either bless or curse. Uh, do we have more? Um, releasing shame and guilt? Yep. Mm, this, is, this is the other one. Does anybody have the leftovers from the other one? There's a couple. <clears throat> Here's, this is releasing shame and guilt, but this, this other one, I don't know if there's, there were some extras or not. I, I brought 50 copies of each. Is that an extra? There's two, here's two extras over here. Okay. <clears throat> so let's look at this. Words can either bless or curse. You know, there's power in words. Do we agree with that? Do you, do you agree with there's power in words? The words we speak into our children are either life or death. They're either blessing or cursing. And yes, there's some, there's some pretty generic words that, we're, that we use that don't have to be necessary blessing or cursing, but the way it's presented is, is almost always either a way of life or a way of death, or a way of putting down or lifting up, okay? So here's word curses. Why can't you do anything right? I mean, I, I, I'm just telling you there was a, a my, my brother David's one of his best friends that they spent a lot of time together, but his dad always told him, you're, going to be a, you're a failure and you're always going to be a failure. He spent his life and he went bankrupt twice and he got divorced trying to prove his dad wrong. Do you understand what word curses will do to you? Do you, do you uh, uh, the, uh, uh, a culture of shame? I mean, that's, that's huge. Why can't you do anything right? Your brother can do it. Why can't you? Okay. You'll never amount to anything. Oh, you were an oops. You know, I've heard parents who told their children, well, you, know, you weren't planned. You just happened. Well, you can, maybe you can say that if you say, but wow, is it ever a blessing from God? But if you don't, if you don't fill that in with, with, with some truth, that, but see, if, if it was an oops and you weren't pleased and you communicate that, man, you just put a curse on that person. They're going to spend the rest of their life thinking they're an oops, and I can promise you I talked to people who told me that. 
my parents told me they, you know, they, they, I wasn't planned. They never finished it up with a blessing. It beca- that was a curse. They, they just always thought they weren't wanted. They weren't, this, this was, you were an accident. Okay. And I want, it, you know, if there's adopted children here, our children are adopted, adopted children have to process that. They have to realize that wasn't your fault. God has a plan for you. He, those are unchangeables, and you can accept those unchangeables and embrace them as God has a special plan for you. Okay. Nothing is, nothing is without value. Uh, you're too fat, you're too skinny, goes back to body image. Must you be so clumsy? And then the comparison thing. You're just like your... Word curses produce powerful inner voices or personal truths. A personal truth is a truth that is true to you, but not, not really true. Does that make any sense? A, a personal truth means that you believe it is true for you, but it's not a universal truth. Okay? Well, I'm not worth anything. I'm not valued. Uh, I can't succeed. I won't be successful. That type, that type of thing. That becomes a personal truth. And it produces powerful inner voices. Powerful inner voices that we can't, we don't know what to do with. That's so important for us to understand. And then we're, yeah, I'm to blame. It's my fault. And you know, some things are, we are to blame, and it was our fault. And those are, those are tough, and we have to work through that. We just recently had a couple that was, a couple of parents of, of three teenagers, and they were, had a head-on collision, they were killed. And they were killed by uh, a Mennonite man who was taking his daughter to, and, and, and he was driving uncontrollably fast, and it was a mistake on his part. It was a horrible mistake on his part, and people died. How would you deal with that? That's, that, you see, that's, he, it was his responsibility. It, and, and so what do you do with that? We, things like that happen. We have a man in our church that he had his two-year-old in, in the skid loader, and when he brought the bucket down, the, skid, the, the, young, the two-year-old bent over and killed him. You know, he's our deacon. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? He had to live and deal with what he did. Some of those things seem so hard for us to get past, but he has a sweet wife who, even in all that hurt and pain, they supported each other, and they're okay, and they're doing well. You see, things happen. What are we going to do with it? Some things are our responsibility. Some things, and, and he can blame himself, but you can't undo it. What do you do with that? Well, you have to get to the place where you realize, now I have to accept God's forgiveness and other people's forgiveness, and even if other people won't forgive me, I have to receive God's forgiveness, and I need to keep on walking, because if I don't, I'm done. I'm unattractive, I'm undesirable, I can't do it, I'm not wanted, I'm not loved, and on and on and on. Those are word curses, and it produces these powerful inner, inner voices. Inner voices cause us to over or underreact to life. That is accurate. Inner voices. And you see, when, things, when, when traumatic things happen to us as in a, at a young age, we have to develop internal systems. Children do de- in, uh, develop internal systems to help them survive and to help them get through what seems to be a very difficult, impossible situation. And then they become antisocial and they become quiet and they become, or they become boisterous and, and arrogant. And you see, those are inner voices that are, that are not being, they're not, they're controlling them. Okay. So here's a key. It has a check mark under it. Inner voices cannot be erased. You can't erase inner voices. You must replace them. Because those inner voices are personal truths that you believe about yourself, and they need to be replaced with God's truth, the truth about how he, what he says about you and how he sees you. And that is the truth that will set us free. So, what is the cause of those inner voices? Well, it's false guilt or shame. So, what do we do with shame? 
So if shame is genuine shame and real shame, and it's something we did that was very shameful, here's the key. We must turn the shame into guilt. Can you hear me? We must turn the shame into guilt. I'm ashamed for what I did. It was wrong. That was stupid. And I am, I am guilty. But here's the whole thing. Shame isn't something that's forgiven, but guilt is forgiven. He says if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive. We're going to look at that, okay? So lies or personal truths produce inner voices that become my story, and we all have a story. You want to ask yourself, what personal truths, what lies am I believing that become my personal truths that are causing this to be my story? And then what you want to do is you want to evaluate it. You want to tell the truth about it. You might need to sit down and talk to somebody, a good friend, someone that you can count on, and, and tell them your story and say, what do you see? And this is what I end up doing. I'll sit down with people and I'll listen to their story, and now we'll tell the truth about it. I told you about that young lady and what her father did to her. We had to sit there and talk about what the truth was. And we had to replace the lies that had been planted in her inner being and tell the truth about it. It was not your fault. I looked at her in the face and repeated several times. I called her by name and said, it was not your fault. It was not your fault. And I called her by name again. It was not your fault. Whose fault was it? It was dad's fault. It wasn't anything you could do at four years old, at six years old, at nine years old. There was nothing you could do about that. It was not your fault. We got to tell the truth about it. Okay, truth sets free. If it was true, you, you confess it. Okay, we'll talk about that. So then assign true guilt. And, I, and I, uh, this is something that she did. She signed true guilt. It's what we must do. We must tell the truth about it. This was father's fault. It was dad's fault. It was mom's fault. It was grandpa's fault. It was whatever, whoever's fault it was. You tell the truth about it, you assign true fault. You assign true guilt. Okay? Write a letter, not necessarily to be sent. In fact, I encourage it not to be sent. To the source of the false guilt and shame. Read it aloud with a trusted friend, perhaps at offender's gravesite. I've had people do that. Go out to the grave and read it to, their, to this person who is in the grave. And then take a lighter along and light it and burn it there. And give it to God and say, I'm done with this. I'm giving this to you. And I told the truth about it, read it out loud, tell the truth about it, burn it. I, I was working with a, a person sitting in our living room, in our back room, and she was so deeply wounded by her mother. And she had written this out, and this was just a tale of bitterness. And she, we prayed through that, and she forgave her mother. And I says, what do you want to do with this? And we have a little wood stove in the corner. And she goes, there. We went over, opened the door, opened it up. She threw in and watched, watched it go up in flames. Okay. She, she burned it. She put it behind her. It was, it was done. Will she have to remind herself again? Yep. But I forgave mom and I, I took care of it. I'm not carrying that letter anymore. I'm not carrying it in here anymore either. Okay. Truth produces inner voices that become my new story. So we got to tell the truth about it. And when we tell the truth about it, it becomes our new story. So flip the, uh, flip the page. And we, we're just about ready to wrap it up here. <clears throat> Experiencing freedom from the condemnation and guilt of sin. So this is, your, this is some homework. If you are dealing with shame or dealing with guilt, here's how you get rid of it. Repentance is a godly sorrow, not only for what I've done, but also for who I am. Does that make any sense? Okay, sometimes if we are guilty and we did something wrong, remember the, the publican, there was a Pharisee and says, uh, I'm glad I'm not like the publican. But the publican smote his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He didn't say, have mercy on me for what I've done. He said, have mercy on me for who I am. We recognize that we are a sinner and we can repent of that. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. 
Worldly sorrow brings death. You see, when we, it, when we have a worldly sorrow, grieving over what was done to us, but never turning it into something we can release and let go of, it just eats at us and eats at us and eats at us and it eats at our relationships and it, and it impacts and affects all the people around us. Luke 18 says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay. Acknowledge, tell the truth about what we're doing or what we have or have not done. 1 John 1.8, this is key. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So we're acknowledging that we are sinner. We're acknowledging that we sinned and then confess. Audibly, audibly confess out loud in detail what you've done. And even if it's between you and God, I still say audibly confess out loud to God what you have done. Agreeing with others and God, and if you want to do it with a trusted friend, do it with a trusted friend, that's perfectly fine. That we have violated God's holiness, disobeyed his word and deserve his judgment. But look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, what is he? And what else? Just. Just. To what? Forgive us our sins and what? I would like to talk to you about cleansing from all unrighteousness. That's iniquity. He's cleansing us from the motive of why we did what we did. He, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive that sin. And he is just. Just means he justifies us. That means we're not guilty anymore. Do you hear that? We're not guilty anymore. He's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from the very reason why we did what we did. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what iniquity is. It's wanting to be my own God. It's why we got into the trouble we got into. Okay. James 5, 16. Listen. So when we confess our sins to God, he's faithful, he's just, and what will he do? He'll purify us, he'll cleanse us, he'll forgive us, right? Okay, look what James says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, hear, hear my heart on this. This is my, my own take on this. I've heard other people talk about it too. But when you confess your sins to God, you're forgiven. You're justified. You're not guilty anymore. But you just probably will fall back into the same sin again unless you confess your faults to somebody else. It's when we confess our sins to one another that we get healed. Isn't that interesting? There's this connection that we need to not only acknowledge our sin to God, but you see, we can't see him and we can sort of do that. But when I'm looking at somebody else and saying, do you know what I did? You can't believe what I did. And we tell that brother, you see, it, it brings an humbleness to us, and it puts this, it puts this, this it, it writes the seriousness of what we've done on our hearts so that we don't want to do it again. So I see healing comes from being confessing. I'm not big on big public confessions. I grew up with all those, and I had enough of them. But I also believe that when we don't confess and we hide things, we might confess to God and we go, that's all we have to do. We just got to confess to God. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And that's true. That's true. But if we don't get healed from that sin, now we're going to fall back into it again. Does that make any sense? Just a little bit. Maybe. You might not agree. That's okay. You don't have to agree. Anyway. Here's the missing links. In parentheses, says the following two steps are frequently missing, resulting in multiple confessions for the same sin and never experiencing God's forgiveness and freedom. How many of you confess the same sin over and over again? Ah, uh, ah, uh, why, 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 why? Here's, you know, I want to tell you how to get rid of that. I want to tell you how to get rid of that. You thank God. You see, because if you confess it the second time, what are you telling God? You didn't do it the first time. I didn't believe you. You see, you've got, when you, after you confess your sins, you've got to thank him. Say, Father, thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your justice. That you forgave me and you cleansed me. Thank you for that. Okay, that's a powerful tool to get freedom. Thank you for forgiving me of all the stuff that I've done but, and this horrible thing that I did, but also cleansing me from all the wrong motives and actions that, you've, that, that I've been embracing. 
You see, that is the freedom that comes. And then the sign of remembrance is huge. The sign of remembrance down there below, an important, powerful tool in experiencing freedom. This is a tool to use against Satan. Satan is the accuser, the father of lies. When he comes and tells you that you have not been forgiven and you are guilty and shameful, you can take him to the sign and tell him to leave in the name of Jesus. For at this place and at this time, God forgave you and cleansed you and he can no longer hold this sin against you. That sign has power. You put your, so I have people actually fill this out while I'm sitting there. But I say, now, when you go home, go upstairs in your bedroom and go inside the closet and write the date, date the time, and the place. And when somebody else sees it, they're going to think that's when you painted the room. But when Satan attacks you, you take him up there and say, Satan, in the name of Jesus, you get out of here because I confess this, and God is faithful, and he is just, and he forgave me, and he cleansed me, and you can't mess with me anymore again. You, I, you are the accuser of the brethren. You can't accuse me anymore because Jesus justified me. I am not guilty anymore. Get out of here in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We're done. Any comments? Any thoughts? <laughs>